This morning's scripture readings are from assorted proverbs about work and integrity. They will be displayed behind me on the screen. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found. Whoever winks the eye causes trouble, and a babbling fool will come to ruin. From the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good, and the work of a man's hand comes back to him. The heart of the righteous weighs its answers, but the mouth of the wicked gushes evil. The backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways. A good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. This is God's word. Integrity isn't exactly what you think it is. Dave Palmer, uh, his investment company invested, uh, or his company, software company, invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in a, in a proposal to develop a software system for an entire city, one of the largest cities in the United States. And during the research, his staff discovered that other competing companies were having discussions, under the table discussions with uh, city commissioners tasked with awarding the project. So behind the scenes, under the table discussions, and when his staff approached Dave about having similar discussions with those city commissioners so they could maybe get a leg up, he said, under no circumstances will we do a thing like that. He said, I'd rather lose 10 times the money we invested in this proposal than do something or anything that would compromise our integrity. Now this cheery story, I've described is the fruit of integrity, but it's not the root of integrity. So we're spending our uh, Sundays in September looking at what this uh, book of wisdom called Proverbs has to say about the subject of work, our labor. And, And Proverbs specifically mentions this word integrity in relationship to to labor or or to, to, to one's business dealings. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at three things. We're going to define integrity, we're going to consider the benefit of integrity, and we're going to seek to reintegrate integrity. All right, define integrity, look at the benefit of integrity, and seek to reintegrate integrity into our lives. So first, we'll start with the definition of integrity. And the cheery story I just mentioned to you is is sort of the prototypical illustration for a sermon on integrity, isn't it? Right? But as I mentioned, doing honest work is the fruit of integrity. It is not the root of integrity. In fact, the literal root of integrity, the Hebrew root word for integrity comes from this this word called tom, and, and it means complete, whole, undivided. Complete, whole, undivided. And that's really important because when each of us goes to our, our job or goes to school or turns on our job or school from our laptops, 
we are told that doing honest work is simple. All you have to do is choose to do the right thing. Like Spike Lee once said, right? Do the right thing. That's all you got to do. But it's not that simple. Because every day we are bringing our entire selves into that space, into our workspace. And unlike Clark Kent, right, when we put on our cape, we don't change into a different person, all right? We, we stay the same person we were when we walk, before we walked into that room. Proverbs 15, 27 says, whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. Now, the word integrity doesn't appear in this proverb, but the concept clearly does. And it's a really unusual proverb because its author Solomon couples together a, a, a business moment, right? Greedy for unjust gain with a, with a household domestic result, which is trouble his own household. If you're greedy in this sphere, you're going to trouble this other sphere. Spheres we normally keep apart, right? We talk about not wanting worlds to collide. You want to keep them separate. They can stay separate. Except that the person who cheats, cuts corner at work for self-benefit, will do the same thing at home because the person can't just switch on and off who they are, right? Remember the definitions of integrity. It's to be whole, a whole person, a continuous person. There is continuity in who you are. At home... That might look a little different than business, right? At home, it might look like attending the last five minutes of your kid's soccer game and saying you were there the whole time. It might be doing half the job when you do dishes, right? It might be, like, it might be not picking up the dog's business when you go for a walk because, you know, it's inconvenient for you and you're important and you're busy. The converse is also true. Proverbs 20, verse 7, the righteous who walks in integrity, blessed are his children after him. Integrity means to live as a whole person. So if you're whole at work, your family then will be blessed at home or others will be blessed by you at places of enjoyment, wherever it is. The problem is so many of us, myself included, so many of us are fragmented. And I want to I really drill down. I've been thinking about this a lot this week. I want to drill down on what that looks like today to be fragmented. The New York Times podcast, The Daily, put out a really helpful episode uh, last month about the prolific rise of employee surveillance. Okay, so eight out of 10, eight out of the 10 largest private companies in the United States, employers in the United States, eight out of the 10 largest employers in the United States use some form of employee surveillance to gauge individual productivity in the workplace. In other words, this affects you or will likely affect you very soon, okay? Mostly this is happening in the form of, of using uh, your, own, your own laptop's camera, it's a forward-facing camera, or keyboard usage analysis every 15 or 30 minutes to see if an employee is actually working. All right, so that camera you have on your laptop, <laughs> if you're working for a company, there's a good chance they are or they will soon be looking at you back, right? Not totally surprising. They look at your keyboard as well, how often you're using it. And if you are directly looking at a computer screen, or excuse me, if you're not directly looking at a computer screen, and instead, for a moment, just looking at a text that your child sent you, for example, or you walk up even to go to the restroom, you, your salary 
your hours could be docked from your paycheck. And that is happening right now. I'm serious. Companies like uh, Upwork take screenshots of you every 15, 30 minutes. United Health charts every time your keyboard goes idle for a minute. These are some of the largest employers in the United States doing this. And before we sort of shake our collective fists at big business or big tech, there are a couple things going on that are worth noting. And the real reason I'm bringing this up, it's really because companies feel they have to do this. So the first thing is that employee surveillance really took off during the pandemic. So many people felt, you know, so many people working from home, companies felt obligated to say, hey, we got to know what our people are doing, right? They're at home. Are they making coffees, eating donuts? What's happening? Sitting in their sweatpants? I, I don't know what's going on. And what they discovered was interesting. They found out that some workers were actually two-time in them. They were working a second job. At the same moment, they were typing away at their keyboard for theirs. Many were watching YouTube videos all day. Many were playing online uh, video games. They were checking news sources constantly. This sort of thing was going on. In other words, employees were stealing time from their employer. That's number one, all right? <laughs> number two, something happened to us and in us during the pandemic. In 2020, the average American traded a little over, but around 300 hours of in-person time engagement with friends and neighbors for 300 hours of social media, TV, and internet engagement. 300 hours. That means every person added about an hour per day to their phones and screens. An hour per day. And that trend's continuing. Countless studies have emerged showing that these bite-sized moments with our phones and screens are changing the, the physicality of our brain, the physical characteristics of our brain, altering neural pathways. As tech writer Linda Stone put it, our brains are increasingly stuck in, quote, continuous partial attention. And this is real. That means for most Americans are bringing with them a fragmented self to work, a, a mind that is in a state of continuous partial attention to their work. And it's easy to pass the blame as if this is all happening to us. This is happening to me, but it's still my fault, right? Think about it. Like when I open an app like Twitter, I do so to, to hear what's buzzing. Or when I open a, a, an app like uh, Slick Deals, my Slick Deals app to see if I can score an amazing deal, which I love to do. And my family would admit that to you very freely. I'm putting my hope in something other than Jesus to bring a quick fix of life, of joy, of satisfaction, right? So you know that moment, right? When you're at home or you're at work and you pick up that thing and you're like, all right, here we go. I'm looking, bring me joy, bring me life, bring me some satisfaction. Here it comes. And our employers often give us the worst advice about this, by the way, in orientations and at other times, they'll say, hey, do whatever you want outside of your job. But when you step foot in here or when you turn on your laptop, work hard, do an honest day's work, and we can't do it. We can't just separate things like that. We are one person. So if our, our, if our person, if our minds are fragmented in one place, they're going to be fragmented in every place. Friends, that fragmentation is happening. And if you are the exception, if you're the one exception, then it's happening to your kids or your grandkids. But it is happening. 
And let's not just demonize them because there's fragmentations that have happened in different eras and different cultures. This is just the way it's happening now. But I want to talk about the way it's happening. So in a nutshell, our message this morning is this. If you forget nothing else, here is a sermon in a nutshell. It's this. Whole person, whole work. That's it. Whole person, whole work. Only a whole person leads to whole work. That's what we see. Whole person, whole work. And what we see in Proverbs is that God designed us to be these integrated whole persons. And yet we're so fragmented. So before we look to what we can do to become whole, integrated people again, let's first take a look at the benefit of integrity. So we look at the definition of integrity. The benefit of integrity is this. Look at Proverbs 10, verses 9 through 10. It'll be up here on the screen. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his way crooked will be found out. Whoever winks the eye causes trouble, and a babbling fool will come to ruin. The benefit of integrity is security. You're the same person. Not a, not a perfect person, but the same person. And that brings with it security. In fact, the word translated for security here can also be translated as carefree. Because as long as you're the same person, you don't have to explain big gaps of time that go missing in your work day. You don't have to constantly appear distracted because you feel compelled to respond to every notification or text that comes to your phone during business hours, right? Because you don't constantly give in to those things outside of business hours. You don't constantly feel that compulsion outside of your work. The most a whole person has to worry about is making a simple mistake. Compare that to the others described here in this proverb, right? All of whom have to worry about being found out if they cut corners or wasted time. They babbled about a big gain that they couldn't back up with their work or doing things in their own time and way with a wink, right? Because they know better than their boss and his way of doing things or her way of doing things. The fragmented worker must worry about being called out and caught. Ruin trouble, being found out, as the proverb puts it. So we've looked at the definition, the benefit of integrity as well. Let's now talk about reintegrating integrity into our lives, or aka, how do I become whole again? If this is a real problem in our world today, this is, if we bring a fragmented self into our work, how do we become whole again? And we might be able to work well and work hard and work as a whole person once more. The key is hinted at in Proverbs, illustrated in the Old Testament, and stated clearly by Jesus Christ. First, it's hinted at in Proverbs. I'm going to read to you some of those Proverbs again that Maureen read for us. Proverbs 12, verse 14, from the fruit of, of his mouth a man is satisfied with good, and the work of a man's hand comes back to him. Proverbs 15, 28, the heart of the righteous weighs its answer, but the mouth of the wicked gushes evil. Proverbs 14, 14, the backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways, and a good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. All I want us to notice here is a common thread running through each of these Proverbs because Solomon repeatedly mentions them, and that is the heart, the mouth, and the fruit. The heart, the mouth. You see that in all these Proverbs? The heart, the mouth, the fruit, the unseen heart. Okay? The, the heard mouth and the visible fruit. 
No one proverb sort of explicitly connects each of these ideas, but Jesus does. Jesus does later when Jesus comes along. He says something about the heart, the mouth, and fruit. He says this, he says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it begins in the heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man or woman brings good things or good fruit out of the good stored up with him. The evil man brings evil things or evil fruit out of the evil stored up in him. And so Jesus says all this speaking to fragmented people. And his point is that you can't change by what overflows from the mouth, from your work, from anything, by, by trying harder, becoming more disciplined, getting better habits into your life. The problem isn't the fruit, but the root, Jesus says. It's not the fruit, but the root. You can't change the fruit, but you can change the root. And we have to. you got to change from the inside out. To become whole again, you need a new heart, which can only come from a genuine encounter with God. That's how you become a whole person again. And that leads to actually doing whole work. It's hinted at in Proverbs, answered clearly by Jesus. As I said also, it's illustrated in the Old Testament. That's what I'm going to do now. Arguably, the most fragmented person in the Bible is also one of its most important. I want to talk about him for a moment. His man's name, this man's name is Jacob. Patriarch of the faith, master of shady schemes. That is who Jacob is, man. And let me tell you about this guy. Scheme number one, Jacob sets up his vulnerable brother to exchange his birthright for a bowl of stew. So what he does, he studies his brother's temperament, which is impulses, and he chooses a moment when his brother is at his most vulnerable. He's weak, he's famished. Now's the time. He pounces on his brother Esau with an offer. And what's so interesting about this offer is that archaeological evidence suggests that this practice wasn't uncommon in the ancient Near East. There's one documented case of a man trading a sheep for another person's birthright. It's amazing. So is it possible that Jacob was so influenced by the world around him that he gave in to this manipulative business practice? Very possible. That's the first thing. The second scheme two of Jacob is he seeks to obtain the only thing left of value to his brother, his father's final blessing on his dad's deathbed. With encouragement and advice from his mom, Jacob uses the ancient version of identity theft and successfully deceives his own vulnerable father who's blind and on his deathbed to receive the fatherly blessing intended, Isaac intended for Esau. Jacob tricks him into giving it to him. The only thing his brother has left, Jacob schemes out of that too. Scheme three, responding to an unjust business practice towards him, Jacob raises the bar for cheating through a deceptive business practice towards his de facto employer named Laban. What Jacob does is he rigs the livestock market so that he would be certain to gain and Laban, his de facto employer, would be certain to lose. Man, this guy, all he does is scheme, scheme, scheme to get a leg up on people. But it's not the end of Jacob's story. You remember the brother Esau whom he swindled out of his birthright and inheritance? Years later, he encounters him on the open road. 
And he gifts to Esau hundreds of, of goats, of lambs, of, of, of camels, of cows, of donkeys. Most of his livestock, he says, here you go, Esau, I'm giving it to you. And when Esau says, don't worry, little brother, I get it, you feel guilty, but I'm okay now. Jacob responds by begging him, urging him to take the gift. A man who never got the raw end of the deal. He's forgiven, nothing's required of him, and yet still Jacob says, I want to generously give to you of what I have. Who is this man? Well, later in life, he accidentally comes upon some, kind of happens upon some valuable silver that didn't belong to him. The old Jacob would have said, score, right? Genesis 43, verse 12, it says, take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put back into your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take it back with you, give it back to the person you found it. From Jacob's perspective, this would have been the equivalent of walking away from the grocery store, realizing you didn't pay for all the groceries, right, on the receipt, or most of them, except in this case, it'd be like a whole year's worth of groceries with this old bag of silver he just got. The old Jacob would have gotten that and said, oh man, bag of silver, this is a great day. Finders keepers, I'm keeping this bad boy, right? I'm not reporting this. What happened to this man? Put simply, in between his years of scheming and his years of honesty and generosity, Jacob is transformed. Totally transformed. In Genesis 32, Jacob's running from Laban, a man that he swindled, caught in his schemes, his fragmented life exposed. God gets Jacob alone, and there the living God shows up in the flesh and wrestles with Jacob all night long wrestles with him, touches him. His stubborn, relentless, unapologetic nature is confronted with the stubborn, relentless, unapologetic love of God. There in the wilderness, God transforms him. In fact, he transforms his name, Jacob, holder of the heel, what that means literally, to Israel, one who prevails with God. In the ancient Near East, To change someone's name was not only meant that their identity was altered, but their very destiny was altered. And that is the case for Jacob, now Israel. He goes from Jacob, one who pulls on the heels of others to get ahead, to Israel, one who is made whole again, solely by his encounter with God who transforms him. The man, holder of the heel to get ahead, he pulls down others to get ahead of him. Now someone made whole again by an encounter with the living God. And that's the point for us, that only an encounter with God can really make us whole again. I could give you lots of tips and strategy, strategies for, for living a balanced, holistic life. People are going to do that. They always do. You hear it out there, sure. But we know that tips and strategies don't work to transform you because we've tried them. We try them time and again. If I just do this, if I just put this, if I integrate this into my life, I'll become a whole person finally, and it never works. In Jesus Christ, God has showed up in the flesh to wrestle with you, to touch you, to transform you. Once you encounter him, you're made whole. And then you're increasingly made whole by wrestling with him throughout your entire life. I want to tell you about my uh, great aunt Frida. Whenever we traveled where my mom grew up, we'd always visit her Aunt Frida. 
So we do this quite often. Uh, Frida had a personal encounter with Jesus. She wrestled with him, and she kept on wrestling with Jesus throughout her life. She was one of these people who involved Jesus in everything she did. She, she talked about when greeting someone at the door. Lord Jesus, look who you brought to my life. Things like this. So I remember she once broke a dish in the kitchen. Lord, you're testing my patience. It'd be, if she would talk, you know, the post, Lord, look, look who's outside again. I mean, she, look, Lord, thank you for this little chipmunk in my yard. She was always talking to Jesus. And as a kid, I thought, ah, oh, you know, come on. I'd roll my eyes. Aunt Frida's is one of these overly spiritual people, brought God into every little thing that went on in her life. But as I get older, I realized something. How a person gets reintegrated and becomes whole again is so when God gets integrated into every little part of their life. When you talk to God going down the aisles, recounting to him your mental grocery list. Okay, Lord, what do I need to get? That's right, I was going to get olive oil. <laughs> Involving God when you're trying to figure out what to next say to someone. Right? Begging for God's help, for strength to get through your work on four hours of sleep. Saying good morning to God when you wake up. Thanking God when you're about to get intimate with your spouse. That's right. Every aspect of your life. Even the parts you might blush on. I tried to keep a conversation with God this week through every little thing I mentioned. And sometimes I'd forget God. Like hours would go by. I'd forget Him because my life is still fragmented. But God is patient. I just go to Him and say, Abba, Father, you are patient. Let's try this again. Abba, Father, you are patient. Let's try this again. And on we went. You know, that last little proverb that Maureen mentioned for us this morning is Proverbs 23, 26. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. This is a king speaking to his son. A king who knows his son can certainly learn from the fruit of his ways, but will never be transformed at the root. So the king asks his child to entrust to him his heart also. Friend, friends, a king is asking the same of you and I today. My son, my daughter, give me your heart. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that all of us here who feel that fragmentation in our work, at our workplace, would see that connection to the rest of our lives, that maybe we're just fragmented. I pray that each of us here would respond to that invitation. My son, my daughter, give me your heart. Jesus, I'm so grateful that you say to all your people, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. Just come to me. I'll give you the rest you need. He, only you, Jesus, can transform what we really need to be transformed to be whole again. So help us come to you, be transformed by you, and then keep on coming with to you and wrestling with you throughout our lives like my great Aunt Frida did. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.